Well, we've got here in 2 Chronicles 25 the story of Amaziah. And it was many years ago that John Stibbs put me onto the idea that all this biblical history that we've got about all these different people, we could look at it as psychological case studies. And we are intended to approach, I think, these characters in terms of what was their psychology, what was making them tick, what had gone on in their past, which explained their, their present behavior. And time and again we come to the, the lesson that we in Christ are, as Paul says, a new creation. And the old has passed away. We are no longer hopeless victims of the past. And yet God creates connections between our present experience and our past experience in order, I think, to, to try to, to teach us to unravel the past and thereby to unravel ourselves. Now, we start off with the comment that he, he, had, uh, he, he served God, but not with a, a perfect heart. That's in, in verse 2. And the idea of uh, the Hebrew word, therefore, perfect, it doesn't mean sinless. It's actually related to the word for peace or shalom. It's got the same consonants, shalom. And the idea, I think, is that he didn't have a, a heart at rest. He didn't have a heart at peace. He didn't have a good conscience. Now, we read about Asa, a king of Judah sometime previous, that he, although he messed up in his life at the end, he served God with a, a complete heart, with a, a perfect heart, as uh, the AV would have it, that he had a, a basically good conscience before God. Now, that, I think, is the essence that is required of us, not perfection, not moral 100% sinlessness, but living in a good conscience. Again, to use New Testament language, the conscience, in our case, is cleansed in Christ. And we really are able, then, to live with this perfect heart, this heart at peace, rather than total sinlessness, but despite human failure, we can still have that shalom with God. Now, I said that that's similar to Asa, or there's a connection with Asa, the perfection of whose heart is commented upon in the record back in 2 Chronicles 15, and the connection goes further. Because Asa was threatened by a huge army of Ethiopians, and although he's so small, he has such a small army with him, yet he calls upon the Lord and says, it's nothing for you to save by many or by few. And that is the, the same lesson that is brought out here, that the prophet comes and tells Amaziah. In uh, chapter 25 here, 2 Chronicles, verse, verse 9 at the end, uh, sorry, verse 8 at the end, God has power to help and to cast down. You don't need these extra Israelite soldiers that you've hired. It's not about numbers. And the, the similarities, I think, with Asa continue, because Asa, after he's had the great victory over the Ethiopians, he then gets threatened by the uh, Israelites, and he goes and sends a load of money to the king of Syria, to put pressure on Israel to make them go away from him and he's condemned, a prophet comes and condemns him for using his silver and gold in that way and not trusting in the Lord and it's a bit the same here because when Amaziah hires all these Israelite soldiers again, verse 7 a prophet of God comes to him 
and says, look, send these guys back. Although you paid uh, all that money, the 100 talents that, that you paid for them, send them back and lose the money. And unlike Asa, who got mad with the prophet, here Amaziah very commendably humbles himself and does what is totally counterintuitive and, and sends them back. Now, those similarities with Asa and the situation of Asa are, I think, intentional. And Amaziah perceived that, I think, because when the prophet comes to him and says, look, you shouldn't have spent your money hiring uh, soldiers to get you out of a problem, he, I think, sees the similarity with the prophet coming to Asa in chapter 16 and saying the same, and he doesn't beat up the prophet. But, and he humbles himself and does what he should. But then later on, the, the trial, the test, the situation is repeated. Because in verse 16, uh, again, the, uh, a prophet comes to him to rebuke him for worshipping the gods of Edom. And this time, he's like Asa. He makes the same mistake. He gets mad with the guy. And so these similarities are there on purpose. There are purposeful connections that are created by the hand of providence between our lives and the lives of other people who are contemporary to us, people we know, people we have known in the course of our lives, and also with Bible characters. And this is where the Bible comes alive. Because all this history that on one level can be read as boring is in fact intended by God to be seen by us as pointing us towards meaning in our lives, that we can see, in essence, the points of contact. It may be that you have a test or a trial in your life, and you come through it, as Amaziah did the first time, and the prophet comes to him and says, now, don't do this. He humbles himself, learns the lesson of Asa. He gets through it with flying colors, but that doesn't mean that the trial is just uh, never to be repeated. Like any good teacher, God repeats the test to see if we've really got the lesson. And when it's repeated and the prophet comes to him again and says, why are you worshipping the gods of Edom? Then he gets angry and does exactly what Asa did. And so I think that the more you look at your life, the more you examine it, the more you see that life does repeat itself. There is this sense of deja vu in human life. And that's because our lives are not chance and not random. God is at work, and God is very definitely uh, controlling situations and testing us and repeating the test, whether we fail it the first time or we pass it the first time, to try to reinforce the lesson that he's seeking to teach us. It may be that you, know, you have some, some problem in your life and you fail that, uh, that test or that set of circumstances, and then it repeats. And you only know those situations if you look at your life. And the comfort is that nothing is chance, nothing is random. God is in all this, teaching us and leading us onwards. See this again, there's this connection with, uh, between human lives in verse 3, where we're told that when his kingdom was established, or was made strong to him, he killed his servants that had killed the king his father. Well, 
why didn't he do that to start with? Well, he waited until he was strong, and then it seems he went and took some revenge when he felt strong enough to do that. But, despite doing that, when I don't think it was the best thing he could have done, certainly not in terms of, of Christian models, he shouldn't have done that, he uh, kicks in with a bit of obedience, verse 4, well, he didn't kill their children because the law says that the, the fathers should not die for the children, neither should the children die for the fathers. This idea of when you're strong, when you're established in life, then you start failing, this is in fact quite a theme in the, the kings of Israel and Judah. I'd like to just uh, look at several examples. You just turn the page to chapter 26, uh, verse 8, with uh, Isaiah. Isaiah grew extremely strong, and then verse 16, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up, so that he did corruptly and he trespassed. Just back a few pages, chapter 21, verse 4. Uh, Jehoram, when Jehoram was risen up over the kingdom of his father and had strengthened himself, he killed all his brothers. When he was strong, when his life was established, then he misbehaved. Chapter 17, verse 1. Chapter 17, verse 1. Jehoshaphat strengthened himself uh, against Israel, but then he started to, to, to go astray. And a couple more uh, examples. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1. When the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and he had made himself strong, he forsook the law of Yahweh. Chapter 11, verse 17. Uh, they strengthened the kingdom of Judah, made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strong for three years, and then he starts to go wrong. So, when these kings' lives and kingdom was established, or were established, then they started to go wrong. Now, you will have met, as I have done, we meet them all the time, people who are struggling all their lives, it seems, to get themselves set up in life, financially or domestically. They try this business or that career or that course of study. They try this relationship, that relationship, this marriage, that marriage, and the rest of it. And they never quite get there. The society is full of people who never quite get there, but really want to get there. And it's my observation that a lot of those people actually are believers and are involved with God and have expressed a faith in the Lord Jesus. And why is it that there's so many wannabes amongst us? Why, why is that? Especially, I think, amongst new converts. I, I see this all the time, that the people whom it seems God is going out there and calling are people who are always you know, trying to get there in terms of establishing their lives and they never quite get there. Why is that? One of the reasons, and the answer to that is, I admit, multifactorial, but I think one of the reasons is that God knows that once you get established and strong in life, then your tendency is to go astray. So if you wonder why life never quite works out for you, why are you not... Uh, achieving the Western dream, which is, I suppose, of uh, ownership of property, ownership of vehicles, uh, good bank balance, good pension situation, 
happily married, healthy kids, good grandkids, your kingdom being strong. Why is it that actually so few people actually get there? And I think this is the answer. God knows best. Because once you get there, with all the praise and acceptance of your kingdom being strong, and your kingdom can just be your little life with your little, you know, bit of possessions, etc., you're likely to go astray. Now, getting back to Amaziah, well, he did not have, as I say, this, uh, this perfect heart, this, this heart that was at rest. And I think partly because of that, because his kingdom had become strong, he had become strong in his own, in his own mind. And he, uh, as we've seen, he, he has this problem, and he, he hires these men of Israel, for a hundred talents of silver. Then the prophet comes and says, look, you don't need these, send them back. And he commendably does that. But in verse 8, I'd like to just draw your attention to just a couple of words the prophet says. But if you will go, do it. Be strong for the battle. God shall make you fall before the enemy. There is in the Bible an upward spiral and a downward spiral. And we can never take a break, take a holiday, from our relationship with God, life is in a sense a a series of tests and trials. And I think the prophet is saying here, look, you have a choice, Amaziah. You either do according to God's word, or if you decide to do all this in human strength, go, go ahead, do it. I encourage you. And he was speaking as God's word on behalf of God. Be strong, and you will fall. God will make you fall. So, I think God is, is trying to say to him, look, <clears throat> be strong in your human strength and you will fall. And yet we've seen in verse 3 in the Hebrew that when his kingdom was established or was made strong, then he, he uh, slew the servants who killed his father. So then, it seems to me that there's a play on the idea of strength. He was strong. But here the prophet is saying, look, if you're going to be strong in human strength, you're going to fall, and go ahead, do it. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. It's rather like 2 Thessalonians 2, that God sends people a strong delusion so that they might believe a lie. If they do not have the love of the truth. And let's be aware of that. Again, we see this in human life all around us, and we see it in the life of Amaziah, a man being confirmed in the downward spiral. Now, as I say, he, he, he commendably says uh, no to the, these Israelites and loses his hundred talents of silver. And the prophet says, God is able to give you much more than this, verse 9. And we sort of are set up to expect that in the next few verses we read that, wow, he, he got a thousand talents of silver. He found a thousand talents of silver lying under a tree or something. And that everything all finished pretty hunky-dory and he was blessed for his obedience. But... It isn't like that, is it? He doesn't find a thousand talents of silver lying under a tree because he gave a hundred talents of silver to obedience to God's word. And in fact, these Israelite soldiers that he sends home, they go on a rampage, big time. In verse 13, the soldiers which were sent back, they fell upon the cities of Judah, and they killed 3,000 people and took much spoil. So it didn't work out. And I think the operative word is in verse 9, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. He can. There's a potential here set up. 
but because his heart was not complete with God, and because, of course, he takes the the gods of the children of, of Edom and starts worshipping them, therefore this potential that was set up didn't work out in practice. And God has set up for you and for me all kinds of wonderful potentials that we may or may not realise depending how we go with him. I want to think about this thing in verse 14. He, he kills all these Edomites, and then he takes their gods who couldn't save them and starts worshipping them. He takes them home. What a strange thing to do. Why did he do that? Well, I think the answer is partly in looking at the psychological background. Amaziah was the son of Joash, king of Judah, who, like Amaziah, started well but finished bad. Go back to chapter 24, verse 23, that in his youth, in the youth of Amaziah, towards the end of his father's reign, the host of Syria came up, and they destroyed Judah and Jerusalem, and killed all the princes of the people. Now, who were the princes of the people? They were the son, that the sons of King Joash. Amaziah was a son of Joash. He got away. Clearly. And these... Syrians, they took all the spoil of Judah and Jerusalem and sent it back to Damascus. Psychologically, that would have been traumatic for, for, for Amaziah to see his brothers killed, or to know his brothers have been killed, to be the survivor, the one who escaped, and to the shame of realizing that all the, the, the wonder and the spoil of Judah and Jerusalem had been taken away by the Syrians and sent back to Damascus. Now, when he is strong, what does he do? He takes the spoil of the Edomites, the people he's destroyed, and he takes it back with him. But that spoil includes the idols. And I'm sure that when the Syrians came to Jerusalem, they would have ransacked the temple and taken certain of the things to do with Yahweh worship back with them to Damascus. Just like the king of Babylon took the, uh, the uh, cups and all the things to do with the temple service back to, to Babylon with him. And so I think that is one reason why he does this. And instead of just being aware that, look, yes, I was traumatized by what happened when they came and took away all our spoil and ransacked the temple and took our temple things back to, to their country, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, he just does it. He was not in touch with himself. And when the prophet comes and tells him off for this, verse 16, he gets mad with him. And that's just what happened to Asa. He stopped learning the lesson from the past. And he says to him, and the AV it's made a mess of in the translation, Art thou made of the king's council? Uh, the more modern versions put, Who appointed you? And this is a classic. You spoke the word of God to me, and I don't like it, but who are you? You know, it's attacking the messenger because you don't like the message. Trying to discredit the messenger because you don't want the message. Who appointed you? Now, this is not something that we are unfamiliar with these days. So many times I have been criticized. Uh, why are you preaching the gospel? Why are you baptizing people? You're not authorized. You're not appointed by the Bible mission or whoever it might be. And this is, this is basic mentality of human beings. We want to think that the person giving us a message from God 
has got some sort of some sort of accreditation rather than simply accepting God's word and God's people for who it is and for how they are so then verse 18 there's then this bust up after this between Amaziah king of Judah and Joash king of Israel that's the ten tribes and Joash is very proud and he's got his heart is lifted up because he'd beaten the Edomites and he basically seems to want to put himself on a level with with Joash king of Israel because Joash says uh, look the thistle that was in Lebanon that is um, Amaziah uh, has said to the cedar that is great king Joash king of Israel give your daughter to my son to wife in other words you think you're on a level with me but you're not you're just a little thistle and I'm like a big cedar tree now if you're going to carry on like this Amaziah a wild beast is going to come and tread you down and that's what happened that Amaziah and Judah were, were defeated very badly so Joash king of Israel's point is Amaziah you want to put yourself on a level with me and you're just like a thistle compared to a cedar you're nothing it is no accident it cannot be an accident that Joash king of Israel has got the same name Joash as Amaziah's father Amaziah's father was also called Joash and I think that point is brought out in verse 25 where the two names are put together Amaziah son of Joash lived after the death of Joash son of Jehoahaz king of Israel 15 years the two Joashes are put together now clearly Amaziah loved his father Joash because when his kingdom is strong he seeks out the people who killed his father and kills them just remember that earlier on in the chapter when Amaziah wants to go and fight with the Edomites he gives money to Joash so that Joash for a hundred talents of silver will send his soldiers with him and it'll all be, be great I wonder if this was a reflection of the way in which Amaziah as a child had craved his father's acceptance had craved to be on an equal footing with his father and he was willing to pay all this money to another Joash so that another Joash would be on an equal footing with him would uh, come with him to the battle etc don't forget these kings like Joash king of Judah that's Amaziah's father and they had loads of kids they had all sorts of wives and concubines etc and they probably didn't have a lot of interaction with their kids and there's this little boy Amaziah growing up desperate as all little boys are for the attention of their father and he didn't get it and he, he adored his father wanted to be like his dad but his dad was just not paying attention to him loads of other kids dad was busy etc being the king and, and all that and so in later life I think that came out that he pays his hundred tons of silver to another Joash to get another Joash good with him and he wants his um, son to marry the daughter of this Joash according to what Joash king of Israel says in verse 18 he, he wants to be up on the same level even though he isn't now that is my uh, psychological interpretation of, of Amaziah's failure now 
there is such a thing, of course, as what I would call psych- uh, Californian psychobabble. Yeah, a lot of rubbish and nonsense said in the name of psychology, but all the same, all the same, it is true that we are so easily, or can be so easily, the victims of psychological processes that we don't understand. Now, I think I've uh, said before, and I'll say it again, uh, the day when I met uh, a a woman, a a fairly young woman, though she was somewhat older than me, um, who I knew fairly well, and I had never paid any romantic attention to her, this is well before I was married to Cindy, and uh, suddenly one day I met her at a meeting, and I, I started to fall in love with her. And uh, I thought she looked so stunning, and I, I said sort of afterwards, you know, you look so great in that dress that you're wearing. This dress that she was wearing, I thought, was just made her look stunning. And she said, uh, oh, when your mother was over last year, she gave me some of her clothes. That This is your mother's dress. And I suddenly thought, yeah, okay, so that's why I'm attracted to you now, and I've never paid the slightest attention to you over the last few years that I've known you. You're wearing my mother's dress today, and it it attracts me to you. I mean, I didn't say that to her, but I said it to myself. And my point is that we, we do have these unconscious psychological processes going on. And... The answer to that is not to go and take a degree in psychology necessarily, although there's no harm in reading a bit of basic psychology. Um, but the point is to keep on allowing God to change you and to realize the great truth that if we are in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, from whatever background you're from, we are a new creation and the old influences, the old ways have passed away and all things are become new so in Christ where we now are are located are are situated really all things are new all things have become new in potential but we need to examine ourselves and that self-examination is not the same as 30 seconds, 60 seconds as the bread and wine inch towards us uh, on a Sunday or whenever we break bread This means actually uh, not cruising around on Facebook, not uh, wasting your life on all the the millions of things that can take our time and our heart up, but looking back over your history. Have a, I don't say write an autobiography or anything like that, but just have a look back at your life. Look at old photos. Think, what were you doing ten years ago? Where were you? Where were you five years ago? Or twenty years ago? Thirty years ago? Who were you? What did you look like? What were your attitudes? What were your interests? What were your concerns? What were your fears? What were your hopes? What was your attitude to things? And try and get in touch with yourself and pray to God that he will open up you to yourself. We're told that in the context of of the death of Jesus that a sword pierced his side or or a spear pierced his side and Simeon said in Luke 2 that the purpose of that was so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed not in the sense of navel gazing and feeling sorry for yourself but so that we might come to know ourselves 
so that we might start to be able to avoid making the mistakes that men like Amaziah made because they were not in touch with themselves and they were just letting these processes uh, happen to them uh, without gripping themselves and without getting control. And so I submit that in our reflection upon the death of Jesus, that there, above all things, we have the motivation to really radically know ourselves and to see God working in our lives, or trying to work, uh, setting potentials up for us, leading us onwards in an upward spiral.